This audio is brought to you by muslimcentral.com. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh everyone. Uh, I was going to say welcome back to Quran 30 for 30 then realized that alhamdulillah we're we're um we're we've moved on but inshallah ta'ala not moved on from the Quran but very happy to be with you all again alhamdulillah. Alhamdulillah wa salatu wassalamu ala rasulillah wa ala alihi wa sahbihi man wala. So as you can see alhamdulillah rabbil alamin we have a a wonderful panel um tonight that is with us alhamdulillah rabbil alamin. Uh, we have Dr. Hassan Alwan, Dr. Uthman Amarji, who of course uh, were, were part of the Quran 30 for 30, as well as Dr. Rania Awad and Dr. Farah Islam, alhamdulillah, and joined by, alhamdulillah, for the very first time, uh, only on Yaqeen's platform, uh, you know, for the very first time, Brother Hamza Abdullah, alhamdulillah, I mean, who's a dear, dear, dear friend, alhamdulillah, dear brother, um, someone I've had the pleasure of now knowing, I actually was looking back on when you first came down, it's been 10 years, alhamdulillah. So I can say I've known you for a decade, alhamdulillah, I mean, uh, but but very happy to have you as well, inshallah ta'ala, uh, with us tonight. So welcome to everyone that is here uh, tonight, alhamdulillah. This is where you're all supposed to say, happy to be here, and you know, that kind of stuff. So alhamdulillah, I, I think, you know, this is obviously a very serious topic. So let me get the, the housekeeping notes out of the way, inshallah ta'ala, from the very beginning. Inshallah ta'ala, next week we start the firsts. Uh, I'm sorry that we weren't able to start this week. So we'll be starting with Hamza, radiallahu ta'ala anhu, uh, on Tuesday night, inshallah. And uh, we will continue with the Monday night reminder and things of that sort. I want to remind you all to look into the trauma series and the history of Muslim mental health by Dr. Vanya, inshallah ta'ala, and some of the other resources that we have on mental health. Uh, many papers that have been authored about particularly how we maintain our mental health and spiritual and emotional health in the midst of a pandemic. So I don't, I don't want you to miss all of those resources and think this is our first panel on it before I start. Uh, so please go to the website, check it out, inshallah ta'ala. The team will also post it in the comments, inshallah, specific links that you can go to, papers, articles, videos, series, so much that has been done on this subject. But as we you know, talk about now, the moment that we're in right now, I think all of us can say, subhanAllah, that this is a time that's been very, very trying for our mental health for, for various reasons. First, you had the pandemic that broke out. And subhanAllah, that caused all sorts of uncertainty in regards to our health, in regards to our you know, careers, in regards to our loved ones and families. A lot of us have lost people um, in the midst of this pandemic. So you had the insecurity that came through all of that. Then you had the isolation, especially for those that don't have families around them. And even those that do have families around them, but this was the first time that they'd been in such close proximity for such an extended amount of time. And there were challenges that arose out of that. Uh, so family issues, health issues, career issues, right? The masjid being shut down and for many people still not being uh, opened, especially our brothers and sisters in Canada. And then of course, subhanAllah, we went through two Ramadans now, right? One Ramadan where we were fully shut down, another Ramadan where partially shut down. And now we're trying to get back to normal, whatever that means. And in the midst of that, of course, there are certain things that have always been normal, unfortunately, in our lifetimes, but have uh, really risen to our attention in uh, in this particular period. Police violence against African Americans in this country, which has which is not a new problem, it is a historic problem. But of course, we're one year after the murder of George Floyd, 
still many injustices that are coming to light, murders before him, murders after him, over a thousand people since George Floyd, and police violence is still a, you know, a truly, uh, you know, a terrifying reality for many people uh, in this country and one that has yet to have any recourse. And so the stress that comes from that, from seeing a new hashtag on a daily basis, and of course, in the end of Ramadan, that violence that was taking place and has been taking place in Palestine and Palestine around Masjid al-Aqsa, you know, the 27th night of Ramadan, uh, people being attacked, worshippers being attacked in the first Qibla in Masjid al-Aqsa, the evictions in Sheikh Jarrah, the bombing of Gaza, and of course, what continues to be an unremedied injustice there. As many brothers and sisters will mention, and you might have a connection to Afghanistan, uh, and seeing the terrible unfolding tragedies there, the continued murders that take place in Afghanistan and the uncertainty that takes place in Afghanistan, our Uyghur brothers and sisters, our Syrian brothers and sisters, right, who are going on a decade of the genocide that takes that has taken place there. So it's it's connection to, to international causes, to domestic causes, so much that has taken place. And then, of course, the day-to-day -day stressors that come. So this webinar, and I was sharing with the brothers and sisters before we got started, subhanAllah, that... Uh, sometimes it's a relief truly to the heart just to be with each other. And I know that's true for me, just to, to you know, be with everyone, alhamdulillah, I mean here uh, is a relief to the heart. And I pray that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala always allows us to be a source of relief and clarity for one another. And I pray that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala allows us to, to gain firmness uh, through our connection uh, to each other and connecting to him ultimately. But, you know, we have all of these discussions that are taking place about what resiliency looks like. What is the solution for Muslims in this mental health crisis that of course contains so many subtopics? How do we as a community deal with all of these unfolding tragedies and how do we as individuals cope? And I think it's important for us to separate between the two, that there's community resiliency and there's individual resiliency. And obviously, you know, I, I do want to mention this. We had uh, the suicide trend, uh, many people committing suicide and discussions about what, you know, what it takes to to stop people that have reached that place and to, you know, uh, to, to cater to people that are struggling with mental health, uh, you know, before it reaches that point, while also recognizing, obviously, you know, the Islamic stance on these things, also trying to have the Islamic spirit in taking care of people before we reach uh, you know, th those extreme points. So this is a webinar about resiliency and alhamdulillah, each speaker here is uniquely qualified. And, and I really do uh, say that I'm, I'm really looking forward to hearing what each one of them has to say inshallah ta'ala uh, tonight, because they are uniquely qualified through personal and professional and pastoral experience on how to deal with resiliency when we're in the midst of a mental health crisis. And we are looking at a time now where you know, around 5% of the world's population was thought to, to suffer from depression before the pandemic. Now we're looking at the past year where it's about 25%. But religiosity is a part of dealing with, uh, you know, dealing with a holistic mental health approach with the Nahi Ta'ala and truly digging into our community uh, dynamics while also digging into the brilliance of our religion and how we can cater to that with the Nahi Ta'ala. So I want to start, inshallah Ta'ala, with Brother Hamza. Um, you know, Hamza is a person, uh, you have dedicated your life to mental health awareness, especially in these last few years. And you have specifically spoken to the Muslim community, but not just the Muslim community. 
And you've spoken about this from a professional perspective, you know, with, with the NFL and your experience with the NFL. And you've also just spoken about this as a whole, right? How people need to take this seriously. So can you tell us why mental health is such an important topic to you uh, personally and why the community should take it more seriously? Jazakumakam. Assalamu alaikum, everyone. I will First off, my name is Brother Hamza Abdullah, retired NFL player. I left the NFL in 2012 to go for the Hajj pilgrimage. Um, I was able to go with my brother Hussein Abdullah. And when we returned from Hajj, Hussein went back to the NFL, but I did not. And thus started my transition and my introduction to the mental health journey. Um, SubhanAllah, um, before um, we move on, I think it is so very important for us to um, say these kind of disclaimers. Uh, it is not my intention to trigger you. So if you feel as though you're in a place or a space where you're a little mentally unstable, um, now may be a time for you to reach out to a friend, reach out to a family member, someone in your support system, and just let them know that, hey, you know, uh, I'm watching this, uh, this webinar, and I would really like to have some company as, as we go, uh, because I want to introduce you to my mental health journey. Um, if you feel as though it's another level above that, if you feel like you are in a crisis mode, it may be, uh, it may be a benefit to reach out to a helpline uh, like nasiha.org. Or uh, if it's very serious, then, of course, the National Suicide Prevention Line at 1-800-273-TALK or 1-800-273-8255. I myself um, attempted suicide. And um, I I thought there was nothing for me. Um, here I was, um, who I dedicated myself to football from the age of 12 to 28, um, and really to 30. Every day that I woke up, I had something set on my GPS. Like, yes, I was a Muslim, but every day I did something that I loved to do. And all of a sudden it was gone. And what I didn't understand at that time was football was masking what I was really dealing with, um, the childhood traumas. Um, the small T traumas, which led to big T traumas, um, all of these things. Um, I was diagnosed with uh, bipolar one disorder. So I had a very up and down, uh, very up and down mental health. And subhanAllah, when I reached out at that time in 2013, uh, when I looked for help uh, from the NFL and the NFLPA, there was none. Um, during 2012, five current or former players died by suicide. And I say die by suicide because it's so important that we now start to um, pay attention to the language because no one commits to suicide. And I can only speak for myself, but when I was in that position, um, there was nothing committed. Um, I, I was scared. I was scared. I was reaching out for help. Um, I was reciting Quran. I was doing vikr. Um, I even prayed soon as right before. And I asked Allah to save me. I asked Allah to protect me. And I asked that if there's any brother or sister who's been affected by suicide, I ask Allah to heal you. If there's any brother or sister who is experiencing suicidal ideation, I ask Allah to heal you and to protect you. If there's anyone who has died by suicide, I ask Allah to forgive them. Instead of us judging that individual, 
instead of us shaming or guilting that individual um, or being ashamed to talk about or discuss it as a community, I think it is an opportunity for us to serve. Now, I am not condoning suicide. I am not, um, I'm not propagating the message of it's okay because it's not. Suicide to me is preventable as long as we catch it in time. Um, but when, you, when someone is in that stupor, when someone is so severely depressed, you know, they talk about, uh, many times we talk about the story of Prophet Yunus Salam, where he was in the darkness of the night, in the darkness of the sea, in the darkness of the well, and he called out to Allah, La ilaha illa ant subhanaka inni kuntumina dhalameen. There is no God but you. Glory be to you. I have been amongst the wrongdoers. Well, there are many brothers and sisters that may be in that same type of darkness. And just as Prophet Yunus salam, probably couldn't see right in front of him, that individual may be in a, in a room lit up, but they can't see right in front of them. And so they're reaching out. And so can we be, as a community, as a family, as a brother, as a sister, as a husband, as a wife, as a son, as a daughter, as a mother, a father, can we be the one that reaches out to that individual in the dark? As they reach up and they call out to Allah, Ya Allah, save me. Can we be that brother or sister that takes that hand and walks them gently back and say, hey, I love you. You're worth it. You know, that it, I think is very important for us to start at the human level. Because ask yourself, what must it take for a human being to decide, hey, the best option is to take my own life? That goes against everything. All of our basic human instincts, that goes against everything. Now, couple that with the fact of this individual being a Muslim. Being a Muslim who submitted their entire self to Allah. And so I think it's very important to just start at the basic level. That brother, that sister, I don't know what they're going through. But I'm here. I'm your brother. I'm your sister. No judgment. I'm here to listen to you. I'm here to serve you. And we can do that. And uh, before I end, um, I just wanted to say, um, you know, Sheikh Omar, he, he says uh, a lot. And I think to me personally, that's the most important word for someone who is struggling with their mental health or someone who is struggling with Allah's permission. Understand that what you are going through right now is only by Allah's permission. It's preparing you for everything that you ask for because you're going to do great. Allah chose you. Allah chose you and only you to, to complete a task. Allah has given you a gift. You are special. Think about the odds that it took for uh, an embryo, uh, for, for a fertilized egg, for a sperm to fertilize an egg, then for an embryo to come to term, then for your mother to deliver you. And then for you to be where you're at and then put on top of that, the, the birth rates and the country that you come from, you know, those are minuscule data points that you're here for a reason. And it reminds me of the ayat in ayat 41 and so Taha was it where uh, after Allah narrates to Prophet Musa what he's done for him, showed him his favors. Then he says, this not my name, that I chose you. So. Remember that Allah chose you. Allah chose you to be here today to listen to this message of these great uh, shayuk who are going to let us know that, hey, they've dedicated their lives to serving this ummah in this way. And so I look forward to listening and learning. 
gives me my whistle loss permission. I know that I'm here for a reason. I thank you all, my brothers and my sisters. Uh, please keep us all in your du'as. And those brothers and sisters that may be struggling, may Allah have mercy on them. Jazakallah khair. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. Jazakallah khair, Hamza, for that uh, beautiful message. And subhanAllah, I think you, you know, you speak from a place of experience. And I know that it's not easy to to make yourself so vulnerable, but you do it because you care about people. So I really appreciate you being open to be so vulnerable to the rest of us and everyone else to share your experience so that others uh, don't don't have to struggle. So Jazakallah khair, and I'll open it up to the panel, inshallah ta'ala, for anyone that would like to, to comment. Just wanted to, to say to Brother Hamza how much I appreciate you sharing this and the courage that it takes to really share a personal story and how much healing, inshallah, we hope will come at your hands and your story because there are so many, I'm sure, that are listening to this exactly and feeling that this is them. I appreciate that you gave the trigger warning, of course, at the very beginning, which is very important. But I do hope that everyone that is listening here that feels that there is something similar that they have gone through or their family or friend or loved one has gone through, that they also reach out for help. And I can't emphasize that enough and how important and part of our you know, tradition it is to reach out for help in that way. And I just want to bridge this really quickly to, um, you know, the right before Ramadan, as we know, there was a very difficult case that many have heard of, a tragedy, really, a, a whole family that was lost in which there was both murder and suicide. And I, I just say here again that for those, since it was such a wide known uh, story and case, that for us to seek out the kind of training and support that that helps us really help others. And um, I hope that people will continue to do so. I'm just going to give, and inshallah, there'll be, I'm sure, resources in the chat in terms of trainings that have been developed specifically for the Muslim community around this. Um, at Maristan, the new organization that I'm part of, this is exactly the training that we do related to suicide and the Muslim community. And so I do hope that others will partake in that kind of care and help so that we can continue providing healing all the way through our community. Uh, would anyone else like to share anything before we move on, inshallah? Barakallah I'll just say, subhanAllah, that, um, you know, as, as we sort of move on to Dr. Farah, I feel like one of the beauties of, of our religion is that there's something productive to take in each and every single one of these discussions, some guidance from the Prophet wasallam on how to show compassion to the individual while not compromising standards in society and community. And so I really appreciate that, you know, you shared, subhanAllah, that the hukum on, on suicide is not what's being discussed here, right? The ruling on it as, as a cardinal sin in Islam, but the speaking to the individual and helping the individual to see value in themselves. They're not struggling with the gravity of the sin. They're struggling to see value in themselves to continue to push forward. And I appreciate that. Uh, you merge that together. May Allah bless you and, and uh, reward you as well, Dr. Rania, for all the resources. And I'll say this, that you helped us as imams in Texas get through a very, very difficult uh, stretch. One of the most difficult janazas I've ever attended in my life. It seemed unnatural. It seemed strange. Um, and and I, I asked Allah that I'd never have to see anything like that again in my lifetime. Uh, because praying on multiple people at a time, I mean, even the way we were just trying to arrange, you know, the bodies and, and those that, you know, the two brothers that committed the murder, suicide, or, or that, that uh, you know, uh, that carried it out. And then the rest of the family members, we were trying to figure it all out. And Dr. Vanya was, was very helpful in that entire process. May Allah bless you in helping us navigate that all. Jazakum Allah khair. 
Uh, so in recognizing that, um, I'm going to come to you, Dr. Farah now. Uh, Dr. Farah, you know, when we're talking about spirituality and leaning on our religion in a helpful way and in an authentic way, because a lot of times it's taking a hadith and taking a concept that's, you know, fundamentally, you know, not necessarily in accordance with Islam even and putting a hadith on it, right, or a language on it. And we're not trying to put a language on it. Our religion you know, recognizes the benefit that comes from other from from other paradigms that uh, can be of use to us as long as they don't contradict and undermine. And at the same time, you know, our religion recognizes how holistic we are as people. That we are we have our physical selves, our emotional selves, our spiritual selves, our mental selves. And the Prophet ﷺ mentioned that uh, you know Allah has a right upon you, your family has a right upon you, you have a your, yourself has a right upon you. All of these different ahadith. So. A lot of people think that spirituality alone can resolve prior emotional suffering and trauma. How should a Muslim approach their well-being holistically while considering all possible avenues of healing? Jazakallah khairan, Sheikh Omar. That's an excellent question. I'm going to try to unpack it by actually asking a question back to everybody. Have you ever been in a situation where you've had a really difficult time and you finally break down in, in front of somebody and it can be breaking down in your despair or maybe you break down in your rage, right? Everybody breaks down in different ways. And you tell someone finally about what you're going through and they respond with something like, oh, you know, the sun will come out again. Uh, there are plenty of fish in the sea. It's kind of like a like a pat on the back, but it's such a hard pat that it sends you flying across the room. Um, police brutality, you know, violence, uh, racism. It happens. You know, we need to get you through this. Why are you getting so angry about this? Um, Israel and Palestine. This is ongoing. Right. Um, you don't need to cry over this. Inshallah, it'll be OK. Right. You're going to get through this. And let's focus on the positive. Let's focus on what we can actually do. And they get into full on coach mode, right? That's called toxic positivity. And then on the other hand, maybe you've been on in a situation where you've poured your heart and your guts out to somebody and they respond with something like, have sabr, have patience. It's the qadr of Allah. You know, recite this surah before you go to bed, et cetera, et cetera. And they kind of blink at you you know, blink at you a couple of times and seemingly unmoved by the fact that you've spilled your guts out to them and they walk away even though they've left you sobbing. Both are awful. So that's called spiritual bypassing. And both toxic positivity and spiritual bypassing are awful ways in which we dismiss the lived experiences, emotions, and realities of the people around us. You know, here's the thing with spiritual bypassing and toxic positivity, right? We are trying to force people out of their pain because it makes us uncomfortable, right? I promise you that you will not make anybody stronger or more resilient by trying to make them put a lid on their emotions by telling them, oh, you know what? Emotions are messy. I don't really want to deal with this. You know, can you just wrap it up, right? Make me more comfortable. What you're going to do to that person is force them to build a hard shell around themselves where they will be broken inside. And I can't emphasize enough how dangerous this is. You know, when a person continuously has their pain dismissed just over and over again, 
they will walk away from Islam, right? There are so many paths in this world, in this life. People can find comfort by turning to so many things. And they will say that, they will think that Islam did not give me that, right? Islam did not speak to my heart. Don't be the person who drives someone away from Allah. So let me let me give you this scenario. All right, you're in the masjid. You've been in charge of a kid. It could be your neighbor's kid. It could be your niece. It could be your little brother, or it's your own child. And the khutbah, the sermon is about to start, and someone gives them a candy. They're suddenly on a sugar rush, and they start screaming and running around the masjid in all of their glorious glee, right? Do you A, clamp your hand over their mouth? B, to glare at them, somehow willing them into submission? Or do you see, take them outside, take them out into the hallway, to the parking lot, and let them run around, let them have fun, let them be free, scream and laugh as much as they want to, and then and then bring them back inside when they're feeling calm and okay? Or D, maybe all of the above in a certain situation, right? Here's the thing. A and B, clamping your hand over their mouth or glaring at them, condemning them for what they're doing is like toxic positivity and spiritual bypassing. It doesn't help the person, right? When you clamp your mouth, your hand over a screaming child's mouth, what's going to happen when you move your hand? Probably going to bite you maybe. <laughs> that's, a, that's a very valid response, but they're going to probably scream louder, right? When we tell someone to put a lid on their emotions, they're probably going to cry even harder. They're going to become even more enraged, right? The thing is, when we take someone out for a walk, right, us listening, resonating with someone's experience is like taking them out into the hallway, to the parking lot, and just being with them, right? We walk with them, we be with them, and we say things like, it sounds like you're going through a really difficult time. I'm really sorry you're going through this. You know, I'm here for you. You can talk to me about it. Tell me more about what you're going through. And you can say, and if saying that, you know, seems foreign, it seems, you know, uncomfortable to say, or, you know, that's not really how you would respond, respond sorry, then, you know what, silence is gold, right? Just sit with them. Just put on those active listening ears and just, be with them, just be with someone in their pain. And you're telling that person, I am going to walk with you in your pain, right? Just like Brother Hamza so beautifully was talking about, just being with someone, resonating with what they're experiencing. Think about the sunnah of giving advice. You know, our Prophet وسلم, had so many different responses to the same question because he intimately knew what would reach the heart of the questioner, right? Our Prophet وسلم, you know, he deeply felt for his ummah. He cried for us. He knew the people around him and he knew what he needed to say to be able to really make that impact. And think as well about all the different conditions, about all the different states and circumstances that our Prophet went through in his life, you know, from being an orphan, poverty, being a widower, having to bury his children, and as well, you know, being a great leader of a powerful ummah, right? He went through all these different conditions, these different states, and he used all of those experiences 
to draw upon them, to develop a deep empathy for the people around him, right? And the thing is, and it sounds kind of strange, but you know what? At an individual level, we also can spiritually bypass our own emotions as well. You know, we can use faith oftentimes as a distraction. We can be going through a really difficult circumstance and we just keep telling ourselves, you know, I'm fine. You know what? Muslims don't get depressed. Um, I have so much to be grateful for. And you kind of bombard yourself with, you know, different praying more, doing this, doing that, just to distract yourself from what you're really facing, right? And, you know, really when you know, maybe you should be having that difficult conversation or maybe you should be uh, doing that apology that you know is really difficult for you or whatever the situation might be. So, you know, I want to emphasize and remind ourselves that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and Brother Hamza actually beautifully talked about this too. You know, Allah specifically handpicked different situations, circumstances, hardships, dark times just for us to be able to teach us. You know, Allah is a Rabb. He is our teacher. He is our master. He is our guide. And if we choose to take all of that hardship, all of that pain and shove it into a closet and not face it, we are failing to hear the lessons from our Lord, right? Think as well, you know, we just went through Ramadan. You know, a person who fasts and only gets hunger and thirst out of their fasting, they didn't do any of that introspection, any of that, you know, soul cleansing, didn't change after Ramadan, then that Ramadan was not helpful for them. And it's similar with our hardships and our dark times. If we can't glean lessons from what Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is trying to teach us from those difficult circumstances, then again, all that pain, all that hardship was for nothing, right? SubhanAllah. And so there's a beautiful hadith from our Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam and the, the authenticity of this hadith is disputed, but I wanted to share it because it provides us with a beautiful lesson here where the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam tells us that there is no forbearance, there is no halim except for the one who has stumbled, except for the one who has fallen. And there is no wisdom, there is no hakim, except for the one who has experience. You know, be vulnerable, be raw and honest with yourself. We have all made mistakes. We have all stumbled, we have all fallen, and we will continue to do so throughout our lives. But use those experiences, use the lessons in those circumstances and allow it to develop a deep forbearance, a deep halim, not only for your own pain, but so that you can resonate with the pain of the others around you. There's this really cool quote from Jeff Brown where he says, when you reach a stage where you can have a very dark and difficult experience without having to look on the bright side, then you know you have made progress on your healing journey. You have enough light inside to own the shadow and you have enough shadow inside to own the light. Allah is the, is the Lord of the East and the West. Wherever we turn, there is his face. Allah is also the Lord of your light and your shadow. He knows all of you and loves you. Use your light and your shadow to bring hope. 
Walk with people in their pain as you walk down your own road, facing your own fears. Lean into that dark, lean into that shadow, explore it, face it bravely. That is where you will find your strength. Jazakallah khairan. Dr. Farah, very powerful words. May Allah bless you, and I'll open it first to the panel, inshallah, if anyone would like to share. Jazakumullah khair, Dr. Farah, like very powerful. And subhanAllah, like as you said, that research even showed, you know, like when they do therapy and they want to see what contributes to positive outcomes. It is the counseling theory, it's the techniques used, right? And time upon time, what came as the number one factor that results in successful therapy, that decides therapy is successful or not, is the therapeutic alliance. It's not the counseling theory that's being used. It is not the techniques. It's what? It is that I feel that the therapist understand me. What people are looking for is to be understood. I felt sense. What they're looking for is a holding environment. And subhanAllah, and like, we have this beautiful concept of rahmah. You know the word rahmah, mercy. And the rahim, the womb, and the rahim is, is the womb which holds the baby. It provides this gentle, tender environment where the baby grows. Human beings, they have the, see, the seeds of goodness in them. Sometimes all what they need is the fertile ground to hold them, and they will grow. They find their own solution. And it's very well put, mashallah. I, I, I wish, may Allah give us the ability and the courage to feel the pain of others and to see others. And for them to see that in us, because I think that's the best thing we can get people around us. Jazakumullah khair. Jazakumullah khair, Dr. Hassan. Is there anyone else that would like to share anything uh, in regards to that? Alhamdulillah. I'd like to put something out there before we move on to Dr. Hassan now, inshallah ta'ala, with, with his portion. And I want to see if we have agreement across the panel, inshallah. Uh, because I'm trying to process this as a student right now, too, as someone who's not in this field, um, that I think that we we would say that Dean is always part of the healing, right? That it's never to be completely uh, cast aside. Religion is always part of the healing. That's one thing that I'm understanding. The second thing, and this is my my putting this forward, that nothing that fundamentally contradicts the Dean can be a part of the healing. But then the third thing is that anything that is sought for the purpose of being a more, a more holistic person so that you can be a better servant of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and a better servant to the people, right? In the sense of, of helping the people is a part of deen, that that's a part of ibadah, that's a part of our worship. So those are three things that I'm understanding as a student today. Does does everyone agree with this or do, would, do I need to word this a little a little bit differently, inshallah? You got it, Imam Amar. And the word holistic is the key there. That's exactly right. That's exactly. I got I got a thumbs up. Hamza, you give me a thumbs up too? Yeah. Alhamdulillah. Yep. Right. <laughs> so Dr. Hassan, inshallah, we'll, we'll move to you and Jazakumullah khair for the beautiful um example that you just gave. Uh you often take concepts that we have that that I personally have not thought of, um, you know, with very familiar texts, but offer just a much deeper dimension. I really appreciate that about. Uh, always when you speak about about what you bring forth. And so the question that I have for you is that when a person is suffering, when a person is going through life's challenges, they often feel like the intense emotions cloud their judgment. I'm not able to think clearly. 
I'm not able to do what's best. So how do we better control our emotions in the face of stress and difficulty? Jazakumullah khair. Bismillah, alhamdulillah, wassalatu wassalamu ala afdal al-mursaleen, Sayyidina Muhammad wa ala alihi wa sahbihi tayyibin al-tahirin. Jazakumullah khair, a beautiful question. Uh, I start with a dua. Allahumma anta salam wa minka salam. Tabarakta ya dal jalali wal ikram. Oh Allah, you are the source of peace, the source of serenity. And from you comes peace, serenity, tranquility, uh, stillness. And blessed be you, most deserving of uh, awe and most deserving of reverence and the most generous. Uh, yes, subhanAllah, like we are all looking for this concept of peace, serenity, stillness. Uh, and oftentimes we get disturbed when, when we see a storm, if you will. And uh, I'll start with this simple example to answer the question. I want you to imagine with me uh, uh, a boat uh, somewhere, maybe in a harbor where the water is, you know, everything is calm, you know, the skies are great, you can see the clouds, maybe the birds, the sun, very, and that's what most of us are seeking. I just, I'm seeking peace and stillness and tranquility. However, weather conditions do change. And all of a sudden you see clouds and all of a sudden, you know, the wind starts blowing and surely enough, you know, there is some waves coming and the, the, boats, the boat starts rocking. But the most dangerous thing is that this, the, the waves coming and hitting the boat, the boat can be thrown on rocks. The boat can get off its, its, its location and it actually can break. What do people do? They can change the storm. They can do nothing about the storm, but usually they drop an anchor. What happens is the boat, I can control the storm. Dropping an anchor will hold me in my place in the midst of the storm. And subhanAllah, we say peace, serenity is not the absence of a storm, but it's the ability to have tranquility and stillness in the midst of storm. Uh, there are techniques. Sometimes uh, we suffer from storms that are internal, emotional storms, sometimes a wave of anger, sometimes anxiety, sometimes sadness, and sometimes it's so big, and sometimes it's loud, and there is thunder and lightning, and it's, it can be very scary. But what we're looking for sometimes is not to remove the emotions. The emotions are there for a reason. But if I can anchor myself, is there a way that I can drop an emotional anchor, a spiritually, you know, a spiritual emotional anchor that in the midst of the storm, I'm anchored? And yes, and I'll share maybe one or two. The first, the first technique, what is emotions about? And why did Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala create emotions? Uh, emotions are essential for communication. I just want you to reflect on the beautiful words of Brother Hamza. Like, wallahi, they say it is not about the words that leave our lips, but it's about the heart from which the words came. The words that leave our mouth comes cloaked with the state of our heart. And you can tell when a person speaks, with emotions, the words are very powerful. So the intent that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala created those emotions in us, those emotions that we like, happiness and smiling, and, and there are other emotions, you know, fear and sadness, and we don't like, but they have a purpose. They shape our communication. They help us communicate. And therefore, the number one way to drop an anchor is to take the emotion to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. It was created for me to shape my communication. Therefore, I use the, instead of, I want to get rid of the emotion, which is the essence of the problem. I'm sad, I don't want sadness, which is of course legitimate. Nobody wants to be sad all the time. 
But the first way to anchor myself is to take the emotion and take it to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, which is comprom compromised of what? Number one, I have to be aware of my emotions. Where are they in my body? What am I really feeling? And then I go to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Ya Rabb, Ya Qadir, man lil-ajiswaik, oh most capable, who is for the most incapable but you? Ya Rabbi, I'm afraid. Wa anta al-mu'min, and you're the source of all peace and all the source of all safety. I take the emotions and use it to shape my dua. I take it to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And we find that in the Quran. You find Ya'qub alayhi salam, for example, he was faced with yani, things that would make any dad grieve and, and sad. Losing your children, losing Yusuf alayhi salam, the one that he loves so much. And what did he say in the Quran? I'm taking my sadness, I'm taking my grief, I feel them, but I'm taking them to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And that's the spiritual anchor that prevents the emotion from throwing me left and right. It, it will not remove them. Remember, dropping an anchor doesn't remove the storm, as we said, but at least I'm anchored, right? So that's the first thing. Uh, the second, uh, which I think is very powerful, is based on a hadith of the Prophet The reason that the, the emotions uh, tend to escalate is, interestingly enough, emotions feed on themselves. What does that mean? Emotions have a feedback. I'll give you an example. Uh, I wake up, I'm sad. Because I'm sad, there is an urge, don't leave, you know, uh, uh, or like, uh, uh, let's say, I'm, yes, I'm, I'm sad. Uh, I don't want to leave the bed. Why am I sad? Uh, find a solution. So I feel an emotion. The emotion is intense. What do we tend to do? Find a solution. Think. See, it tells the mind, think, analyze, find a way out. What if my mind thinks and comes with, I don't know what to do. I, I don't know what to do. Think about Palestine. I'm so upset, I'm so angry, but I feel so helpless. I think and I come back, there is nothing I can do. I feel angrier. Uh, I'll give you an example. If I hear, may Allah protect us uh, all, uh, there has been a terrorist attack. The first thing I do is I get my phone and look, you know, and then, oh, what will I do about it? And I start thinking. If my mind comes back with, I don't know a solution, how would I feel? I feel more worried. And then as I feel more worried, I tell my mind, think more. And this, this is what produces this mental health issue. My mind keeps thinking, thinking. I'm into an analysis paralysis mode. I feel an emotion. I don't know the way out. I get upset at myself. I beat myself up. I hold to the problem. I insist on thinking. Has it happened to me that somebody said something against me and he went home and I spent the entire night thinking, why did he say so? And I can't stop thinking about it. And the more I think about it, the more upset I become. How do I break this cycle? There is a hadith of the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, and I'll say the meaning here. So uh, he sallallahu alayhi wa sallam in this hadith, he asked Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala saying that I'm your servant, the son of your servant. And he asked and implores Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala with all his names to make the Quran the remover of his sadness and the remover of his worries. What's interesting about this hadith is the following. Neuroscientists lately, they said the following. A brain cannot retain a thought, you cannot retain a thought if you're focused on two physical senses. So for example, if, if, if my brain is so much focused on something and I'm into this loop of analyzing it and I feel sad and I keep thinking about it and I can't stop thinking about it, they tell you, okay, focus on two physical senses, meaning what? Focus on your breath, in and out. Focus on the, the way the ground is, you know, uh, your feet is on the ground. If you focus on two physical senses, you cannot retain a thought. 
Well, what about reciting Quran? Reciting Quran serves the same purpose. If I have an intense emotion that captured my mind and I cannot stop thinking, people would say, but I recite Quran and nothing happened. How did I recite? Recite out loud. Recite with focus on the ahkam of tajweed. I want you to notice. You, there is no way I can be reciting Quran with focus on the ahkam of tajweed, you know, the proper pronunciation. Notice the breath, the in and the out breath that calms my uh, 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 neural system down. And it actually breaks the cycle. My mind is, if you will, reset. I can never retain a thought if I'm reciting Quran properly, even if I don't understand the meaning. As long as, yes, go ahead, sit properly, you know, face the Qibla, recite out loud. If I don't know how to recite, you know, play, uh, I don't know, uh, Sheikh Mashari Rashid and follow along. If I do that for five minutes, it, it breaks the cycle of this intense emotion. It gives me a break. Finally, I want to notice something about this hadith. It's very interesting what the Prophet Sallallahu said. Uh, he, in this hadith, the Prophet ﷺ, the focus is not, Ya Rabbi, please remove my anxiety. Ya Rabbi, please remove my sadness, which of course we should implore Allah for. But did you notice what he said? Make the Qur'an the cure of my sadness. Make the Qur'an the cure of my anxiety. A big difference between a person which we should you know, find cure in uh, breathing exercises. But if I can find cure through the Qur'an, that's more beautiful. I'm taking reward as I breathe. So I said two things. When we feel, feel, feel intense emotions, the number one thing is take it to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Emotions are intended to shape my state, to shape my words, to shape my worship. So go to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala in dua and munajah. This is one. The second, one has to be careful from the, the link between emotions and the mind. I don't want to enter into a cycle. Analysis paralysis. I need to break that cycle. How do I do that? Especially if the emotion is the emotion is intense by focusing on two physical senses. One of the best ways is Quran. Finally, I have to practice those techniques in the time of ease, so that they're there for me in the time of difficulty. I ask Allah Subhanahu wa Taala uh, to give us a nafs that's mutmainna, a tranquil soul that is content with his all his decrees, happy with all what he gives and longing and aspiring to meet him. Jazakumullah. Jazakumullah khair, Dr. Hassan. May Allah reward you for those beautiful, beautiful words. SubhanAllah, the Qur'an is truly our refuge in more ways than one. May Allah bless you. Uh, would anyone like to share anything on, on what Dr. Hassan just shared with us? I, I would I would like to say Jazakumullah khair first uh, for Dr. Hassan. And I think <clears throat> when he's talking about um, taking those emotions to Allah and crying to Allah, complaining to Allah in that sujood. Um, well, when you get up uh, and, and you go and someone is there for you, that brother, that sister on the other end, um, that may be the answer to your dua. So being willing to, being willing to, um, to, to receive the help. And also if you're on the other end, you know, something says, Hey, one, one I sent, and I'll send a text message to Sheikh Omar, seeing how, see how he's doing. I may be an answer to the door. Sheikh, is there anything, you know, you guys have had, you know, we, we mentioned it earlier, that very difficult stretch of time uh, that our brothers and sisters experienced in Dallas. Um, but being able to reach out 
And then being a, being a listening ear and no judgment again, but just being there for our brother and sister. You may be dancing to a duasu. Jazakallah khair, Sheikh Hassan. Beautiful answer. Jazakallah I can just add to that a quick reflection and say that, um, and, and thank you, Brother um, Hamza, and also Tisha um, Hassan, because this concept that you mentioned about that the other person could, that you get to the other side and they could actually be the answer to your dua is so key because people always ask and think, you know, should I be able to just do this alone? And our tradition is one that explains that actually help and care that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala sends, as you mentioned, Brother Hamza, can come through all different forms. And this especially, I mean, I speak here now as a mental health clinician where I say, what is my role in the middle of all of this? And honestly, sometimes it is, I hope and pray, the answer to someone's dua, either their own or their family member that says, Ya Allah, please send this person help and care. And there are people in our community that are trained to actually help others through what they're going through. And they've trained all these ears in order to be able to have that therapeutic listening ear and know how to advise in the, in a proper manner. And so I hope people that are listening, all those in the audience that are listening, realize that it's actually about the way in which Allah answers your dua could be through other people, right? And through other means than yourself. Barakallahu people. Exactly. Can, can I add one thing? Yes, please do. Uh, there is this story that I even sometimes share with uh, people that seek counseling. Right? Um, and the story, it's its not the story of companions, but a righteous person that used to, uh, to have this reliance on Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and he would go in the wild, you know, no food and anything. And he would hunt and he say, Allah will provide for me. He'll get his water, he'll get his food and everything is great. And I depend on only Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Tawakkul, you know, great, right? One time he goes, a day passes, nothing. He said, you know, tawakkal ta'ala, the second day, uh, I'll find something, nothing. Third day, nothing. And then he sleeps and he's now so disturbed. You know, Ya Rabbi, did I do something? I'm relying on you. There is nothing around. And he sees in a dream as if a caller is telling him, you will not be given any provision till you enter this village. A village this And the man wakes up and he goes to the village. Once he goes in, people see that he's, it's apparent his state, he needs food. So people came to him and started giving him food and water and everything. But the man was so disturbed, Ya Rabbi. Uh, why people? I was asking you. Uh, why? I don't want people to give me anything. And then he saw in a dream that as if a caller is telling him, didn't you know that for Allah to provide for you on the hands of people is more beloved to him than providing you on the hands with his power and you know direct provision? So sometimes... Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will afflict me not because I'm bad. Because the doctor that's going to cure me, he needs the hasana in, in his you know, scale of good. Because I'm going to become the reason that others will enter Jannah through me as well. So other people sometimes are the solution. And Allah loves to give on the hands of other, others. May Allah make us all keys of goodness, inshallah. Amen. Amen. Beautiful story. Jazakallah khair. I think all of us are moved by the, by the story, alhamdulillah, and the deep lessons in it. And um, inshallah ta'ala, to, to build on this uh, concept, um, I think that there's a fear of uncertainty, right? And uh, as human beings, we don't like what we don't know. And that's usually spoken about in the realm of prejudice, but it's also 
you know, how badly people want us to know when is the day of judgment, Matasah, right? When is it, Ya Rasulullah? Can you just tell us so we can know? We, we want to know the date of our death. We want to know the date of day of judgment. We want to know when this is going to happen, when that's going to happen. We want to always be able to see, you know, the exact plan unfolding in front of us because with everything in, in our lives, right, we, you know, you get into a degree program and you know that at the end of four years, if I finish this many courses, then I graduate. You, you know, it's it's supposed to be structured. And subhanAllah, one of the most difficult things about being abd is that you submit that to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, right? Yeah, Allah, I'm I'm okay with not knowing as long as I'm doing what is going to earn me your favor. And I know that you will only plan in my favor so long as I am doing what is, you know, the actions that earn your favor. And so I think that it's uncertainty, right? And so I want to turn now to Dr. Uthman. And alhamdulillah, this has been a beautiful session just far, thus far. And, and, and you know, you all work together in the same department at Yaqeen. And, 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 you know, this has been the beauty of the research that's been produced is that it merges these two. But, you know, Dr. Uthman, from a spiritual perspective, building on all of this and being aware of the mental health struggles and challenges. We don't like uncertainty and COVID has taught us how unpredictable the world is. How do believers prepare for the uncertain struggles ahead without knowing, right? How do they prepare for that uncertainty? What, what does it take to prepare for the uncertainty that life will inevitably present to you? Subhanallah, uh, this has been uh, the topic that we've been thinking about for the last year and a half with COVID. And um, you're right, people do crave certainty in life. It seems like every single day, all of us, you know, we do things that maximize our knowledge our day is going to look like. So we um, check the weather forecast, despite the fact we know that it's going to be sunny or it might be cold, right? We put the GPS coordinates into our phone, even though we know the exact route of where we're going to go. Um, we'll shop and shop and shop, look at the best price. We're certain we got the best deal. And all these are part of human nature. But subhanAllah, it's for the believer, it is really, really, really important to remind ourselves that uncertainty has been woven into the fabric of the universe by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala for a hikmah. And that hikmah is that life is actually meant to change. Uh, the seasons, the colors of the trees, our emotions, you know, our own kind of personality and, and our children, like we're always constantly in a state of flux and change. And Allah reminds us about this in uh, one of the most powerful verses in the Quran that I love in Surah Luqman. And you, you mentioned that, but we're always wondering, you know, when is the day of judgment? And Allah wants to remind us that only he holds the keys to the uncertain. This verse to me is one of the most humbling verses that a human being can really stop and just absorb. Because in this pursuit of certainty that we all have, Allah tells us, O human being who craves certainty, recognize that certainty is reserved for Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Indeed, Allah alone knows when is a day of judgment? He alone knows um, when the rain is going to fall. He knows, only he knows what we will acquire tomorrow. The human being will never meant, will never know exactly what his income will be tomorrow. And we will never know when and where we will die. Indeed, Allah is all knowing and he's all aware. And so the, these verses, what I find in this beautiful verse is that it reminds us of all the things we care most about. We care about 
our, you know, when is the day of judgment? We care about maybe when we're going to die. We care about how much money we're going to make. We care about the details of who our children are going to be. Allah says, this is not for you to know. And so one of the things that a believer can do is to remember that true progress in life actually occurs through the uncertain, through progress in life and breakthroughs in every field, whether it be scientific or personal or spiritual breakthroughs, they occur with the element of surprise. And this is what makes life truly worth living when there is surprise. And if we were to know everything, if I was to know tomorrow exactly what my day is going to look like, you know, to the detail of who I'm going to meet and what I'm going to do, that's a boring lifestyle. And so what I want to speak about for a few minutes is this idea of embracing uncertainty and actually um, not just tolerating it, but truly embracing it as the key to resilience. And I'm saying this as a tool so that we know how to weather the storm when it comes. Um, this is something difficult to do in the middle of a difficulty, but hopefully that we can use in times of peace and comfort. So that way, when the tribulations come that are promised to come, that we have a better idea of what to do. And there's two things that can happen. As Sheikh Hassan mentioned in the storm, one thing you can do is weather the storm, right? You can just, it, it's, it's, it's difficult, right? It's, it's not fun, but we're just going to get through it. And the other thing we can do is also try and aspire for the best, which is people who are stronger after the storm. And I love this analogy that's given is that a flame that exists. A flame, if it's exposed to one of the most uncertain elements, which is wind, two things can happen to the flame. The wind can either knock out the flame completely and there's no more fire, or that wind can really cause that flame to become a full-blown fire. And so we don't want to just survive the uncertainty of the wind, right? We want to thrive during that uncertainty. And this is what we learn from the prophets of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala that they were those that Allah tested over and over and over. As the hadith says, you know, that the, uh, that Allah will test people to the, to the level of their faith and that sometimes he will give us more tribulations, not to break us, but to elevate us. And so the prophets are examples of what we can do. And they, we want to be like that flame that when the wind comes, it makes us grow. And this is why and it's, it's apt that the Prophet Muhammad actually gave a dua about the wind. That when you would see the wind coming, he said, he put up his hands to the sky and say, Oh Allah, I ask you for its goodness and I take refuge from you in its evil. So part of uncertainty is about not trying to avoid it and not trying to run away from it, but to actually run to Allah with that uncertainty and say, Ya Allah, I don't know what is going to happen. Ya Allah, I am not in control of these things. I can only focus on what's within my control. Everything else I put into your hands. And so I want to mention two things that I think are um, really, uh, it's, 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 it's one of the most confusing parts about the world we live in today. There's something called the World uh, Uncertainty Index. And this has been tracked since 1990. And the world in 2020 and 2021, it hit a peak of what they consider to be the amount of uncertainty that people are experiencing politically, economically, and personally. Now, while we're having this peak of uncertainty in the world, we also live a lifestyle that in many ways is just reinforcing that everything is predictable. So uh, this technology around us has created an illusion of certainty. So, um, you know, we get up every morning, we set our alarm, we know exactly what time we're going to get up. We know uh, we can set the thermostat. We know exactly the temperature of our house. Um, we put the GPS in. We know exactly the minute we might arrive somewhere. And so all these things give us a sense that we're truly, truly in control of everything. But for the believer to remember to build a tawakkul mindset, as Dr. Hassan spoke about. Tawakkul truly, this idea of putting your complete trust and reliance on Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, it is a form of embracing uncertainty. 
It is a way of saying, Allah, I know that there's uncertainty in the world. Allah, I cannot predict what's going to happen tomorrow. And so the unpredictable, I put in your hands. Allah, I don't know how much money I'm going to make. This pandemic has, has, has made my business upside down. I ask you for your risk and to give me what's best. Oh, Allah, you know, I don't know what's going to happen you know, tomorrow because of something with my children. I'm worried about their well-being. Allah, I, I put my concerns in your hands. But I will take the, whatever is in my control and do the best that I can with that. And so just one of the things I want to mention for, for time of what we can do is in this world that we live in that is super uncertain in one regard, but in many ways we're seeking certainty every single day, to try and do something very practical as a tool. You know, we go to the gym to work out um, when we're healthy. So that way, you know, we get stronger and stronger and stronger. So if any stressors hit us, you know, physical stressor, you're able to deal with that because you're strong. Uh, dealing with uncertainty and building an, uh, a tolerance for it is to help us when there's turbulent times. So what can we do? One of them is to begin to reduce uh, our reliance on the false sense of certainty. So one of the things that we can do, a simple example, is rather than rely on technology 24-7 to give you that false sense of security, step away from it once in a while. Say, I'm going to go to the store today. I'm going to leave my phone at home. And for many people, that can be really, really, really paralyzing to say that I'm away from the, from the thing that kind of anchors me and kind of gives me that sense that I know what time I'll get there and all the details. If anyone calls me, if anything's on social media, I can access it. Step away from that for, for a day. Turn off your social media for a day or two and say, Allah, I don't need to know everything that's going to happen. I'm okay with not knowing something. Um, go out in nature. That's probably my biggest piece of advice is when you go out in nature and you spend even a day or a night if possible, what it does is it teaches you that you can't control nature. You can control your house's thermostat. You can control a lot of things when you have technology around you. Go out in nature and let the elements just be there. It might be windy. It might be warm. It might be cold. Uh, you don't know exactly what is going to happen. And you just go out and you allow that, the world, to just, and you, so, and you soak it in the way you can. And so this is what the prophets of Allah had done. And the, the last thing I'm going to say is to read the stories of the righteous, because that is a way to practically have a visual model, what it means to practice uh, and embrace uncertainty in life. The story of Musa, the story of Yusuf, the story of Prophet Muhammad of Ayyub. They were hit with tribulation after tribulation after tribulation. And all of us will find in one of those stories uh, something that we connect with. So whether it be with Musa, السلام, he had an accident, accidentally he hurt somebody, he was fearful and he had to run out of town. That is the most uncertain thing that anyone could go through. Or if it comes to Yusuf السلام, and the uncertainty he went with, being sold into slavery and being plotted against his brothers and being... Uh, thrown into prison uh, without doing anything wrong. Prophet Muhammad وسلم, being chased out of town, bleeding and, and having uh, people die that he loved one after another. Find stories of resilience in the righteous. And so this is just the one thing I really, really want to emphasize is that learn to embrace that uncertainty, put it in the hands of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and build a tawakkul mindset by surrounding and inundating yourself with the stories of those who are masters of it. I ask Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to give us that ability to tolerate uncertainty, to embrace it, and to put it in the hands of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala because He is our wakil. He is the one we put our trust in. Subhanahu wa ta'ala. Rabbil Izzati Amma Sifun wa Salamun Al Mursaleen. Alhamdulillah. Jazakallah khayyan, Dr. Uthman. And um, inshallah ta'ala, of course, I'll open it up to everyone if anyone wants to share anything, inshallah. Dr. Ahmad, I'm reminded about the research study that uh, you led, mashallah, related to this concept of 
uncertainty tolerance that you've been referring to. And, and, um, and, and for everyone, I just wanted to share that Yaqeen has done this amazing uh, study on Muslims and COVID-19, probably one of the largest, if not the largest study on Muslims and COVID-19 globally. Um, with, with I, I don't know the newest numbers, Dr. Arthman, something maybe in the, the arena of 10,000 Muslims. It's a lot of people. And what's so amazing, one of the most amazing takeaways um, I remember from that study and what you're saying right now is exactly right. This concept of not being able to tolerate uncertainty actually some of the research showed that we found um, was that there was a clear connection between someone who wasn't able to fully you know tolerate that uncertainty which alhamdulillah islam gives us that resilience to be able to do so and so those who had less uncertainty tolerance actually had higher levels of potentially developing major depressive disorder or MDD. Like there was a a clear clinical connection between the two. And so yet another reason here coming from the scientific or medical perspective of why it's so important to employ that level of being able to do tawakkul as a verb, like actually take it upon ourselves to um, live and let live, right? To like put things in Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala's hands after you've tied your own camel as we say, right? And so I think that's a very um, clear indication and even another level of, of reasoning as to why what you're saying is so key and important. Barakallah. Jazakumullah khair. Anyone else would like to share anything about that? Dr. Rahman, I think you brought up some amazing points, mashallah. This, uh, this idea of running to Allah with our uncertainty. I think another really great sort of exercise that we can do is to go back to some of those moments of uncertainty in our lives. For example, think back to what it was like when COVID-19 first hit. How did you cope with that uncertainty? What were sort of your go-to methods and strategies and other moments of uncertainty as well? And kind of brainstorm, what are other ways that you would like to encounter or face the, uh, the next uncertain time in your life. I think that's a way of also developing our resilience. We can draw upon the examples of the prophets, Salam, just like you mentioned, and also our own, uh, the, the own, our own ways of how we dealt with uncertainty and how we want to move forward facing the future, inshallah. Jazakumullah khair. I think with that, uh, by the way, you know, you mentioned our individual past, going back to our past, when we did things right, how Allah got us through other difficult times. And so I want to transition then to the collective past of the Muslim community. Um, Dr. Rania did a wonderful series on the history of Muslim mental health. I remember trying to take notes and I think it's being converted into a paper inshallah ta'ala. As you were speaking, I was listening to the series, trying to take notes because it was truly phenomenal, alhamdulillah. And I think it gives us not just a sense of pride in an abstract sense to go back and say, wow, we were at the forefront, we were pioneers but to think about what that looks like now. So Dr. Rania, in that spirit, um, how have Muslims dealt with mental health in the past and how can we implement some of the best of that in our communities today? Inshallah, happy to definitely discuss this because I think it's such a powerful um, history and heritage. Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim. Wa sallallahu ala Sayyidina Muhammad wa ala alihi wa sahbihi wa sallam ajma'in. And actually, I will, I'll do what Dr. Farah did and ask the audience back a question and ask, what if I said that Muslims were in fact the pioneers in the mental health field? That might strike people, 
you know, in different ways, if, especially if there isn't a you know, large understanding of what our history has been. I know I didn't have that starting off and had to really do research and really find this and discover this along the way. And that's why I'm so passionate about sharing it. Because when I ask a question like this, people always say, myself included, well, what's the proof? And I always say, well, the proof is in the pudding. So let's look at the pudding together, inshallah. And what if I further asked and said, did you know that Muslims were some of the first to classify, diagnose, and actually treat mental health conditions? This was not theoretical for them. There was the theory and the writing and the research part, but then there was real creation of incredible knowledge base and then real treatments that were developed and even more so actual healing institutions that were developed. Do you believe me yet? MashaAllah. Here's, here's, okay, I'll add one more thing. What if I were to say that Muslims were likely the first to develop talk therapy? Yes, the very same talk therapy that many of us today as Muslims in the community, in various Muslim communities, actually may feel very much a stigma or feel like, no, 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 we don't talk to strangers and air our dirty laundry. You know, we were taught by our parents and grandparents, you don't talk about things that are from the family to other strangers. How is it that I am saying that Muslims were actually some of the first not only to develop talk therapy, but to encourage it? And then what if I were to say also music therapy? Mashallah, right? So let me let me try to qualify some of what I'm saying here. And what you know, Shahamar said is very important and clear that it's not about the race to be first. That's not the point. The point is what inspired early Muslims in the first place to create these very things. What drove them to figure out the inner workings and inner psyche of the human being, our cognition and our behaviors? They were inspired by the Qur'an and the Sunnah. And this was long before the term psychology was ever coined or created. So do you want the proof in the pudding? Well, let me ask you this. Whenever I give a talk and ask and talk about the history of Islamic psychology, I always ask, does anyone in the audience know when and where the first psychiatric hospital in the world was created or built. And the guess, I'll answer here and say the guess that most people have is somewhere between the 17th and 19th century, and often they'll say in Europe. And that's typically what a history book or documentary on mental health history would tell you. But actually, the first psychiatric hospitals and the first ward in a hospital that had mental health treatment and psychiatric treatment was actually in the Muslim world. And it's likely in the 8th century. So this is right after the advent of Islam. And a solid millennium before any such institution show up in the Western world. And so and when I say this and people think, okay, this is very, very old, what did this look like? And so they might have thoughts in their mind about kind of dehumanizing gowns and electric chairs and, you know, people kind of warded off in cells, like you might see in a movie, maybe even a horror movie of some sort. But the reality is Muslims actually had something very different. They had and actually what they're known for in medicine is humanistic medicine. And they created these healing institutions, which in Arabic they called Dada the institutions are place of healing. And in Farsi, which is the other equivalent word, is bimaristan, the place where an ill person goes for healing, you know, and shortened to maristan. This is actually why I was inspired to name my new mental health organization, Maristan, because I really believe in reviving this incredible tradition that Muslims had where mental health was fully integrated into well-being. 
And when you look at what they did, they didn't just create hospitals that helped, you know, with heart disease or, you know, with diabetes or to help you heal your broken foot. They also realized they had to have places. If you're going to talk about the holistic healing, you have to have places that also talk and heal the mind, the brain. And these institutions were beautiful because as Muslims who always did things with its pawn, right? This this idea of as, as far as human perfection can bring, because perfection is only with Allah. But when you give it your all, you see that he institutions that were built were so beautiful, even in their outward architecture. And that beauty followed them inward too. And so they find, you find these beautiful institutions that were in the center of town. They were not out of sight, out of mind. They had luscious gardens and fountains because they understood that a person who was feeling turbulence needed to be healed by all the different senses, this idea of holistic healing, right? And one of the most beautiful things is these institutions were funded by waqf, by the endowment system. So anybody who needed help, Muslim or not Muslim, who was living in that land could go in and get their treatment without having to worry about cost. And zakat money too was used to fund some of this as well. And when people ask, well, what was the treatment like in these historical mental health institutions of the Muslim lands, the Madistans, they were very diverse. There were, yes, medications, yes, even medications, compounded medications to where people would take, if they were feeling uh, very depressed, they would give them something called the mufarrahan nafs, right, the gladdeners of spirit, your early versions of the antidepressant medication. But they also had very holistic treatment where, and this is where I was saying, Muslims created talk therapy and music therapy. They use natural sounds like bird sounds or water sounds, but they also use the tones like the maqam of the, the maqamat of the Quran, that if a person was very depressed, they'd bring them up. And if they were down, they'd use sound and music to bring, to kind of uh, bring them down if they were very um, manic. And when you think about what that means, it's just a beautiful, very interdisciplinary, holistic system where there was also, you know, clean clothing and bathing and balanced diet. They used, you know, cupping and massage and oils. They had these gardens that people could take natural nature walks through, understanding that all the senses had to be integrated. And why? Because Islam emphasized the whole self, holistic healing in all of its manners. And so all of it was together and you couldn't exclude mental health. And if that wasn't amazing enough, I'll just close here by saying that this isn't in the period of time in history when this is happening. I don't prefer these terms historically because they're not accurate in saying golden age and dark ages, but roughly speaking, these are probably the ones you've studied in history. And when you look at the Muslim world in its golden ages, right, it's, it's all the progress on science and medicine, the humanities. These hospitals that I'm referring to were also at the same time where unfortunately people in Europe were still in their dark ages, where people with mental illness were being burned at the stake as witches, or they were sent to monasteries because it was understood this was just a spiritual condition. But Muslim scholars understood it was holistic. So they had the spiritual part, but they also had the physical and biological parts. And they also had treatment of all different sorts, depending on what the person needed. What inspired them all? The Quran and the Sunnah. And, the, you know, I'll go back to this emphasis of in Islamic law, we have the maqasid, the sharia, which one of the main maqasid is that you optimize one's mental health and capacity. And there's a beautiful saying of the Prophet where he says, 
Allah taught the Prophet who said, Seek cures, O servants of God, because God has placed for every cure and for every ailment a cure. And that's really, really key. That if Allah sends something down in terms of an ailment, and we just talked about COVID-19 with Dr. Uthman, you have to realize that Allah has promised he sent down its cure. And that includes all illnesses, mental health included. And so as we wrap up here and really think about how do we integrate this moving forward into our you know, modern day concept, I really think it's time for a revival now that we understand that Muslims very much are at the forefront. And I would say that we have more of a haq or right to be at that forefront of this field of mental health and mental well-being because it's so integrated into our tradition. And we're that motivation, that inspiration, that methodology that led our early Muslim predecessors to contribute to that field of ilm nafs right, that was a precursor to the current field of psychology, that we look at the current field, take what benefits us and is good, and don't reject it all. You have to take what's good, but you also have to figure out what's not and remove that and add and revive what is important. So what is actionable here? That we Muslim sisters and brothers, we really need to remember and realize that we've forgotten our own history, our own accomplishments of our Muslim predecessors, and that their work was largely motivated by Islam. And if you want to learn more about this, Dr. Umar mentioned that there's a six-part series, alhamdulillah, on the topic here with Yaqeen, that we kind of go through this in depth. And a paper, Dr. Amari mentioned the paper as well, and it's actually being released today, inshallah, that goes along with this topic. So I hope you'll um, use some time to really read through our history and heritage. We spent many, many a, a year actually at the Stanford Muslim Mental Health and Islamic Psychology Lab developing this and researching this. And so I hope this kind of um, resources really helps us change our mindset realize this and embrace that beautiful heritage and history that we have as Muslims and revive it. And with that, I ask Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to bless our scholars with the past, the present, and the future, and to allow us to rediscover our Islamic heritage and build upon those accomplishments of our noble predecessors so that we can benefit our own communities, but also all of humanity. Walhamdulillahi Rabbil Alameen. Jazakumullah khairan. And thank you for uh, pointing out the uh, release. So alhamdulillah, I missed it, but it's in the comments, inshallah ta'ala. So we'll put the paper there in the comments inshallah so that people can benefit from it. Um, and I appreciate that. And I'm sure it's better than my own notes. I want to just speak back to you in the, you know, so that you can correct if, uh, if you, if, if you're hearing anything wrong in my understanding of what, what you just said, uh, I think that all efforts, you know, obviously after the prophet and that earliest group, when we talk about the Quran and the Sunnah are fallible, right? But there's an overall, inspiration that we can take that Muslims understood their tradition to actually be calling them to be at the forefront of this. So that doesn't necessarily mean adopting all the techniques and the specifics that have come throughout this period of time. So if it's ninth century in this location that, you know, that this, this particular type of therapy or this particular method was introduced that we're somehow bound to that. However, we should reclaim the overall sentiment, the overall spirit of Muslims being charged by the Quran and the Sunnah 
to actually think holistically about about the cure. So did I say that right? Would you agree with that statement? Absolutely, absolutely. And I think it's important here to realize that that this was happening and it didn't happen in a vacuum. It happened because they were inspired by what what they learned from the Quran and the Sunnah and also integrated modern the science they had at the time, which was Greek medicine actually, and did exactly what I'm speaking about now. They took from Greek medicine what was useful and got rid of what was not and, and actually integrated in Islam into what was now Islamic medicine, right? And I think we need to do the same with modern psychology, actually, where we take what is useful and not just take it wholesale, but also not go straight back to the ninth century, because there's so many more advancements that have happened that are very helpful. And there needs to be a really great integrated system uh, for holistic healing of Muslims. Dr. Vanya. So I'll leave it to everyone to give sort of their, you can comment on what Dr. Vanya said, or you can just share you know, in 30 seconds, one minute, sort of a final message, inshallah, and then we will uh, wrap up, inshallah ta'ala. So the floor is open, inshallah. Or I'll just start calling you, inshallah, one by one. <laughs> All right, so we'll go back in order of where we started, inshallah. So Brother Hamza, inshallah, any last words for us, inshallah? Um, Rahim. I'll say um, we're all being tested. And just think about, let's say, Sheikh Omar in high school being the 6'9 point guard. Um, <laughs> let's say that uh, one day after practice, the coach comes to his parents and says, hey, we think um, Omar is going to be a great player, but I need to test him. And so the next day, Omar is in practice and he gets called for a bunch of fouls. Um, he, you know, he makes a great move, a crossover, and the, and, and the referee calls him for uh, carry. So it's a violation. So it's meant to frustrate him. The coach sits him down on the bench and all of a sudden he's not starting. And so now he's, he's sad. He's depressed. He goes home and he tells Baba, Baba, you know, I don't know if basketball is for me. Remember, Baba understands what the coach is doing. And he says, Hey, you know what? You're Omar. You know, you're a great brother. You're great. You, you, you come from a great namesake, you know, maybe just stick it out just a little bit. And then so he takes that attitude and he goes back the next day of practice and he cheers on his teammates that are starting. Uh, he runs as fast as he can during the drills. And so the coach sees that and then he puts him back in the starting lineup and Omar goals and he leads his team to the state championship. What's the point of the story is Allah has chosen you and it's only by his permission and he's not going to put a burden on you greater than you can bear. So this test it's only so that we can achieve the championship, which is Jannat al but not, but don't forget about here in this life. So that's why we say, Rabbana atina fi dunya hasna wa fil akhirati hasna wa fi nada dinar. All I give us good in this life, give us good in the hereafter, and save us from the torment of fire. Jazakallah for having me. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. Jazakallah khairan. And just to be clear, I'm not 6'9. How's that, that video that you and Hussein made like a while back where we had the uh, when y'all were doing the 30 days and you said I was six twelve seven foot like people were actually like is he really no no I'm not so just just an FYI but <laughs> and the story is is not is not entirely true but the lesson inshallah right it's like we say disputed <laughs> but the lesson is sound I'm really appreciated uh, having you on Alhamdulillah Dr Farah uh, you're up next inshallah. 
to everybody on the panel. I think we got some amazing calls to action, whether it's that we need to know our history, we need to know all the resources available to us, and most importantly, we need to develop a deep, deep relationship with our Rabb, with our Lord, and just being able to call upon Him whenever we're in those moments of uncertainty or in those moments of difficulty. Jazakumullah really powerful reminders. Jazakumullah and Dr. Farah, a pleasure to once again have you, Dr. Hassan. Jazakumullah uh, a pleasure. And uh, I would say the following, uh, as uh, my brother Hamza said, uh, it's not about the test. It's about the performance in the test. A test is not necessarily bad. The test that I ace might be the best thing that happened in my life. But my performance in the test depends on what I did before the test. So the meaning I want to leave with us is the following. Our performance, what we do in the times of hardship, depends on how we were in the times of peace. While we speak about mental illness, it is not about curing an illness. As you can see, we're getting vaccinated. I don't have to get the COVID and then search for a cure. Similarly, there are tools that are things in our spiritual practices that by Allah, Wallahi, when we practice, it gives us resilience and it shows when the time comes. And I, I finish with the saying of the Prophet ﷺ, Go ahead and learn about Allah and know about Allah. Learn about those tools. Learn about mental health. Learn about those things in the times of difficulty. And Allah will make himself known to you in the times, you know, in the times of difficulty. So we learn in the times of ease. Practice those tools, practice in Quran, Zikr, you know, uh, learning so that in the times of hardship, we're ready, inshallah, and prepared for the test. And if that's the case, the test will be an opportunity for us to show show off in front of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Jazakumullah. Jazakumullah, Dr. Hassan. Dr. Uthman. Bismillah. Um, just like Hamza said, and you and you always say, bi'idhnillah. Have husnuddhan for Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Always have the best assumptions of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And for all of us to remember that He is the one who gives and He's the one who um in He's al manah right? He's the one who prohibits. And everything that He either gives or deprives us of is for a hikmah. And for us to have that good assumption of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala that when He gives us, He's doing it out of His love. And when He doesn't give it to us, He's also doing it out of His love because He wants us to grow. And inshallah, through that positive mindset of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will actually achieve the benefits of both both blessings, blessings of when we're given and blessing when we don't have something. Dr. Rani, I know you just spoke, but inshallah, any last word, inshallah? I would say quickly that there's um, two hadith that really come to my mind when I think about you know, suffering and, and tests, and inshallah, I'll just share those quickly because Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala taught, you know, the Prophet that, you know, man minhu, which whoever Allah intends good for, that he actually sends them an affliction that betters them. And this is actually found in Bukhari. And it's really strong because it helps us cognitively reframe difficulties and cognitively reframe any stigma also attached with suffering because the suffering person actually is very beloved to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And one of the most, and the ones who sends the most tests to are some of the most beloved. And when we think about it from that frame of where the Prophet taught us, that wondrous is the affair of the believer, that there is good in every matter that comes for him or her. And I think that kind of real framing helps you realize that this is 
dotted bala, the, the, the boat of tribulation, but we will get through it. And there is something better here if we're patient and work our way through it. And then in the hereafter, inshallah ta'ala. Inshallah. and to all of you for your wonderful contributions. I know we lost Dr. Farah teams, but uh, I know we're grateful to each and every single one of you for your valuable contributions. And we pray that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala ease the afflictions of, of everyone that is going through any hardship that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala see us all through our difficulties and that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala grant us the best of this life and the best of the next. And that Allah azawajal allow us to be amongst the companions of the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam in Jannah al-Firdaus. Allahumma ameen. Jazakumullahu khayran. Wassalamu alayhi wa nabiyyina Muhammad wa ala alihi wa sahbihi ajma'een. Wassalamu alaykum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. Assalamu alaykum. Assalamu alaykum.